We're going to begin a new series tonight. It'll probably last through much of the summer. It's going to be called The Christian Home. It has to do with marriage, the home, relationships in marriage, duties and responsibilities in marriage relating to those in the family, children to parents, parents to children. We'll deal with things like dating and courtship as well as discipline. To me, it's an important subject, one we deal with every 10 years, but the time has come. A lot of things have happened in 10 years. A lot of you are growing up and you've coming into the time of your young life where you're getting married or you've recently been married or you're going to get married. And, and so there are things that you need to hear and listen to carefully and things you need to think about. Let me say this about the subject of the Christian home. You can excite a lot of passions on this subject because you deal with so much that is very personal. Your views of things. You know, you might not like the idea of submission. The wives submit to their husbands because of the influence of this world has made you to think independent of God. We don't mind acknowledging what God said that he said it, but then we dismiss ourselves from doing it because it was a useless hearing of the word because it didn't change your life. And then you get irritated if somebody insists upon the fact that God's way is altogether right and you're altogether wrong. If you're not living the way the Bible said, then you're not living as a Christian. And that seems to be offensive because nobody really wants to talk that way today. It is not politically correct. And one thing that I assure you that I am not, I am not, and I mean as I am not politically correct. I grew up too many years ago and learned the right way too many years ago to change all that for what worked then still works today and I don't have any reason to do it any other way or to see it any other way than the way that God shows it to us. I know what makes a marriage work. I've seen it work. I've watched other people. I've experienced a lot of things myself that were right and I've experienced some things that had to be changed. And so I do understand a whole lot about this subject, but I am not an expert. I don't know everything about it. I just know that when you teach on the subject, people can get a little bit irritated, especially if a man and a woman are not really getting along or they're not doing the things the way the Bible says it. They get a little bit squirmish because, well, he's picking on me. I'm picking on nobody. But as the old saying goes, if the shoe fits, then wear it. Amen. So with all of that said, I want you to turn to Psalm 101 and verse 2. We're going to use this as our text because of what it says. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when wilt thou come unto me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. Now, there's two things here that a man does that brings a third thing into his home that every home not only needs, but that every Christian wants. Every home needs the favor of God in it. That is, every Christian home wants God to be blessing it. We want to know that what we're doing is what God blesses. That when we live, as he said, or when we do things, or we make adjustments, so that what we hear is what we're now doing and trying to do and our hearts in it, then it brings God's favor on that home. And you get to avoid a lot of the difficulties and problems that a lot of Christian homes have today. We shouldn't have the problems 
that we're having today, whether it's in marriage, relationships, children, a lot of things. Just this verse, the psalmist said, when will you come to me? He said, I will walk wisely. This is my choice. This is a decision that I'm going to make. I will behave myself wisely. I'm going to conduct my affairs, my conduct, how I live and how I present myself to this world. I'm going to do it with the idea that you're watching me and paying attention to me. Therefore, I'm going to do this wisely. Lord, I'm going to walk within my house in a perfect way. Perfect here in the sense of blameless. I'm not going to live one way in church and make good testimonies and talk and pray. I want to praise God tonight for this with my family there and then go home and not live like that. Because as I'll say again and probably say it several times in this series, the home is a proving ground of all ministry and all conduct and character. What you are at home, you really are. Now you can be in here whatever is required of you to be. We can all act in a certain way that is acceptable in a church setting. But what you are and what we are at home is who and what we really are. For God sees us as much at home as he does in this building. Or as much as he sees you in your work day, when you're working during the day, or your conduct and behavior. He knows there's nothing hidden from God. And if you want God's favor in your home... You must make up your mind to live according to his way. And if you bring God into your home, you got a blessed house. Everybody will sense it. Things work. Things come together. Arguing, fussing, fighting, sassing, complaining, and criticizing ceases because God doesn't teach us that. That's not a wise way to live, and that's not a perfect way to live. It's when we know we shouldn't do that, but we do it anyway, and we tolerate that, that our house seems to be lacking something of the grace of God. So the psalmist clearly said, Lord, this is the choice I'm going to make. I'm going to behave myself wisely. And in my house, before my wife and my children, I'm going to walk in a blameless way. I want to be a Christian out there, in the church, behind the pulpit, and at home with my wife and my children. So if you want to know if I'm saved, ask them. I want to live like that. And everybody said amen. Now, to begin with, as I think we all know, the American home, at least in my lifetime, is I can look back to when everything was different than it is today. I grew up in the 50s. I know that's a long time ago. But it doesn't seem so long ago because things are still fresh in my mind about the way it was then and the way it changed in the 60s during the Vietnam War and the change of character and attitude. But it was the end times. Because as the devil began to run rampant through this earth in the last days, and people begin to protest authority and become vulgar and use a lot of bad language and rail against God and want to get God out of classrooms and out of government and take in God we trust off of coins. There came this really open rebellion against God himself. People became offended at the mention of Jesus Christ. I mean, that was the time of the 60s. It was also the time of a great outpouring. I got saved in the late 60s. And at that time, God raised up a lot of teaching ministries in those days and gave them lots of audience. 
And a lot of people came to the Lord alongside a lot of destruction and immoral practices happening. The home began to break down. Women begin to get out more and do more and hang out more. They begin to dress differently than they had before. I looked at an old yearbook. Today I was cleaning out my cabinet in there, and I came across an old yearbook from college, 1960. That was quite a while ago. I noticed in all the pictures, I saw no pictures of any gathering of, you know, this club, that club, this group, that group, this organization, that organization. I saw no pictures at any time in which any woman had on pants. All the women wore skirts or dresses. I mean, there wasn't anything else. When I taught school, I never saw any school teacher except gym class in anything but a dress. Men always wore ties. Everything is changing. I said all of that to say this. Everything is changing, and in the middle of all of this, very slowly, the home has been breaking down. The movies and the media glamorizes a single-parent family, breaking down the home in terms of two men can adopt children, two women can adopt children. Or instead of Adam and Eve, it's become Adam and Steve. And to say anything against that is to be racially, or what's the right word for this? Homophobic is a good word. And yet years ago, it was a lot worse than it is today, is the way you described all of that. Because it was not natural. It was unnatural. Abortion is one of the most unnatural things that's ever happened in a home. In the Bible, it goes with being without natural affection, without family affection, without having affection for children, abandoning families and children. You read these things. We've killed so many babies in this country legally. Doctors who are thought of as gods in some circles, they can do no wrong have been paid pretty hefty sums to take lives out of women and just destroy them. In my generation, it's hard for me to believe that this is happening, knowing the way it was when I grew up. Nobody did that. There was almost nobody got divorced when I was a kid. Now today, half of all marriages end in divorce because something is wrong in the way people come to the marriage agreement with each other. And something is wrong when you have that wrong and you get married. It doesn't take long for you to realize that you don't even like each other. You learn that pattern dating and you just want something else. So you go in another direction. Children usually are brought into the mix and they get hurt by all of this. And they begin to realize, I don't know if anybody really wants me. So they grow up angry. They grow up mad. And they're still angry and they're still mad today. Like I said the other day, uh, Los Angeles won an NBA tournament and young people nearly burnt the city up. What happens here? Well, something happened beginning with that. Something happened at home. Something wasn't done right at home. But their parents grew up in the 60s when God was taken out of the equation. And the movies began to let down all of their restraints on language. And they learned to cuss. And they learn to be sexually aggressive. Women are just as bad as men today. I mean, look at the commercials today. Some kid puts some deodorant on his arm and two women can't leave him alone. I mean, I think, what's wrong? Well, you know what's wrong, it's the devil. And all of this has caused the American home to begin to break down and to disintegrate. 
And you have this single parent daycare mentality that the government or the daycare can do a better job raising your kids than you. You can't afford to be a stay-at-home mom or you can't afford to be a keeper at home like the Bible says. And that's so offensive to some women. That's what he made you to be, a keeper at home. And yet, oh, how would we make ends meet? Maybe you bit off more than you could chew. Maybe it wasn't God's will for you to get in so deep financially. Maybe that's the problem. You miss God. Therefore, you have to violate something else in order to go make ends meet. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe it's not that God doesn't want to take care of you. Maybe you just don't want to listen. And all of these things begin to happen and perversions come in and Today, there's such a restriction on what you can say and what you can't say. I think the devil's goal is to break down the American home as much as he can because I believe this too, that the strength of a nation depends on the strength of its homes. That when you break the home down and you begin to disintegrate the home and the values that should come out of the home, then the nation begins to be weakened People begin to be independent. They begin to run to and fro, doing their own thing. Kids don't have a father image. Girls don't respect their mothers. Everything is just messed up. And so at some point, all of us as Christians need to ask ourselves, what should we do? What are we supposed to do about this? What is the right thing in light of all of this, in this kind of an atmosphere, an immoral age, what should we do? What does the Bible tell us to do? Well, just as a nation is strong because homes are strong, the strength of any local church depends on the strength of its home. You see, we're basically a coming together of homes tonight. Now, I know there's singles here, and some of you are not in a family like most of us are. But we are mostly a gathering here of families. And what we are at home and the way we live at home is what we bring to this meeting tonight. I mean, the way you live there, the attitude you have there is the same one you brought here tonight. Now, we can't see it. I can't see it. I'm not around you all week. But the truth is, whatever we are at home, it's what we bring. It's our contribution as fathers and mothers. It's our contribution to the church and the atmosphere here. And sometimes it might be that the reason we're so dull is because God's favor isn't resting on us. It could be, it's promised to us, but if we don't want to do what is right, if we don't desire what he brings and what he offers, that's the way it is. I think every boy and girl in this room, every child ought to act just like your parents. Amen. <laughs> it sounds coming so quiet. I would to God that all you young people here tonight act like your parents. You know what you talk about at home when you're sitting around the table. You know what you tolerate being discussed. I think you ought to talk the same way in church. Would you be embarrassed? Would there be an embarrassing moment? Well, I'm just saying to make a point. I think you got it. But what we are at home is what we bring to the church and put in the atmosphere. This is what we bring. And if we don't pay attention at home, chances are we don't pay attention when we get here either. But that's what we are. Now, the home is a picture of the church. I want you to turn to Ephesians 5, where you've been at least once in your life, and show you that the church is a picture of the home, or the home is a picture of the church. How many of you believe this? 
if there is unrest, anger, yelling, sassing, fighting, fussing, and being in your face. How many of you know if you do that at home, you haven't contributed a whole lot to the well-being of the assembly? Somebody say amen. All right, thank you. Because again, I want you to be aware of our first message tonight, that we are a coming together here of homes. I want you to take that to heart because I'm not going to leave anybody alone for the next several weeks because this is a serious subject. Because I want to be able as a father to know in my heart that all of my family is going to heaven. There's nothing, nothing that could be in this present life that's more important than that. Or if a man gains the world and loses his soul, he's lost all that he can lose. You can't lose more than that. So it's not the world that we want. We want everybody to get so convicted in the family, so tuned into a word that never leaves you alone, just keeps coming at you. For a lot of families, it's prayer time, it's Bible reading together, it's family gatherings and family meetings. I wish I had done that more. I did it two or three times my whole life. But I can see now the benefit of it, Though even though some of us made mistakes, we've learned how they're wrong, and we would encourage all of you young people. If you and your wife will start out talking about the Lord, praying every night, you'll do the same thing when your children come, and when your children come, they will hear from you, especially you daddies. They'll hear from you what's important to you about Jesus Christ, about heaven, about being saved, about living right, about morals and ethics, explaining to them why we don't do this, why we don't go there, why we don't watch that. It's because of the influence of God in our life because when we live on God's terms, we can expect God to bless us and keep us, and we don't have to regret our tomorrows because when Jesus comes, we're going to heaven. To have that saturate a child's mind and grow up with that, we call it brainwashing. But I can't think of anything that's better to wash your brain with than the Word of God. <laughs> to wash your brain. Ephesians 5 and verse 23. Again, I know you've heard this, but let's read it. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in most things. Actually, it says everything, doesn't it? Now, let's stop for a moment. Now, we're talking about a comparison here between the New Testament church and a Christian home. I mean, this is what is being brought out now. The Spirit of God who inspired all this. It's not Paul that wrote this. It's God who wrote this. And this is what he's saying. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Just as a man, a husband, is the head of his wife. And so as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be unto their own husbands in all things. Now, what kind of a mindset would a woman have to have to willingly submit to that? Because she usually thinks of submission in terms of it's not fair. We'll get to submission one other. We'll take our time with that one. Because of how important it is. A man is not the head of his house if she doesn't do this. His house is out of order. O-O-O. 
It's dysfunctional. So if she's not willing to do what it says here, then she is much like the modern church in the world today that doesn't submit to Christ either. They hear what he has to say, but they're not willing to do it. Just as a lot of things she knows in the church, she hears and she looks at that and says, well, my husband ain't fit to be submitted to. And then you come back and you say, honey, I mean, darling, I mean, ma'am, it's not your husband you submit to as much as to the Lord as unto the Lord. He's the reason for your submission, not that man. A man is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. You think a woman is always easy to love when she's always criticizing you or always putting you down or making remarks about you or having no really tenderness towards you? It goes both ways. You think it's easy to really love and commit yourself to somebody who acts like they're not even interested that you're home? Well, no. But you see, if that begins and it's not dealt with, it continues on until it gets fixed in the family. And then it's real hard to deal with because the first time a man says, I'm convicted about this, I want to deal with this, he finds his wife going, now, what kind of religious angle is he at now? And that's tough. But we have it clear here. It's in the Bible. You young people, listen to me. Again, verse 24, Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be unto their own husbands in everything. If you can't do that, make me a promise. I will not marry. Say that. <laughs> All you young ladies, say this. I will not marry. I don't think you're rebels. I just think that's... That's okay, okay? <laughs> Verse 25, husbands, love your wives on the good days. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That's the way you love your wife. So just as a lot of women may be guilty of not submitting to their husbands, a lot of men are very guilty of not loving their wives like Christ loved them. Let me ask y'all as a church, how many of us are always right? How many of us always deserve God's best? How many of us always do the right, loving, spiritual thing before God? Not a lot or very often or enough. Pick one. And yet, do you realize that God continually loves you no less? To his elect, he said, while you were yet sinners, ugly, Christ loved you. You think of that. A man is to love his wife that way. This is a Christian home we're talking about. I'm not talking about the world. This only works for us. It won't work for anybody else. Christian home. So he said in verse 26 and 27, uh, he gave himself for the church that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present to himself a glorious church and so forth. Well, we can't do that with our wife, but he's showing us here just amplifying what Christ did and the effect of it. So back to 28. So ought men to love their own wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Does it say that in your Bible? It's not like we deserve what we're getting. We don't. 
A man who stands in a marriage ceremony and a woman who stands in a marriage ceremony and takes a covenant vow, you can't give yourself any deeper commitment than that. You can't go deeper. You're giving your word. You're going to love this girl. You're going to love this man. I'm going to do this. And you repeat after the preacher all those things. I've never done this yet, but maybe we should have a copy of it made, put it in a window or a glass thing, and make it brief enough that, you know, the vows and the I wills, and, just, and then give it to him as a wedding gift and put it in a prominent place in the house. And when he's not doing it, stand by it. <laughs> or if she's not doing it, go, <sighs> just go to the wall, you know. We'll call it your timeout spot. <laughs> but wait a minute. How serious are those vows? It's just a wedding. I mean, it's just wedding talk, isn't it? Or is it a serious step in your life? After the new birth, after being born again, I don't think of, there's any greater, more important decision we ever make. We've committed ourselves to the Lord first, and then we get married. We're going to commit ourselves to a man or a woman. Commit. I mean, with a lot of thought. I don't mean we met last night and decided it would be a great thing. I mean, with a lot of thought, a lot of time and, and forethought, and a lot of prayer, and you say, I'm cautiously but willing to commit myself to you. And you can't always tell what you're going to marry or how it's going to turn out, what kind of home you're going to have. If I had been my wife's daddy, I would have never <laughs> consented to her marrying me. I wouldn't have because I was so different than her and them and all that. I mean, I grew up in the alley. They grew up in a nice place. But by the grace of God, it was of God, and it worked out. That's why the message of faith is so important. It's really important for you to know the will of God when you marry. It's not the will of God because she's so pretty. Look at her pretty teeth. They can be real ugly if you don't get along. Or look at her body and look at his personality. You can talk about anything you want to. But when something goes sour in the heart, it's amazing how quickly you disown what you promised. And there's very few people that meant so much what they vowed at the altar that no matter what, they stay with it. For that's especially true in divorce and remarriage. When a man commits himself to a woman, he commits himself to her permanently. And it, there's no looking back, there's no turning back, because that's the way God committed himself to you. Amen. Amen. So this is a picture here of the church. And if the church does not submit to Jesus, what do we have? If we have a church today that really doesn't assign to its manner of living the words of God, it doesn't really want to live his way, what do we have? We have a form, don't we? We have a Christian name. We have Christian songs. We have a Bible that we use to preach from. You read the scripture and you preach away from it. And you have all the formats and the formalities. And then man adds his pomp and circumstance to that. So it's entertaining and emotionally moving. But it's nothing if the content of that church is not obedience to God. I guess that's been my call since I got saved. That's the only thing I say anymore, just use different titles to say it. But it is the truth because it's the one serious big time thing that's lacking in the church.
is people, believe me when I tell you this, some of you haven't been to any other church but this one your whole life, and you think, come on now. But there are numerous extravagant numbers of Christians who do not want to live according to the Word of God, who do not want the preacher to preach on it all the time, who get tired of just hearing this narrow way. They do. They want some relief from God. <laughs> they want to do it some other way. Now listen, when you get that attitude in your heart, if you're married, you'll bring the same attitude into the home in your relationships, in discipline, in how your family functions, the decisions you make, and the result of what your kids will see when they grow up, which will determine whether they want what you've got or they want to get out of this. Because it all comes down to those big-time decisions that we make on those meetings in which God really convicts us about things. Why would God convict you about things so you'll walk wisely? Why would he convict you about things so in your home first? First, 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 in your home you walk wisely. If you're not the head of your house, you cannot be a leader in the church. You can't do it. Titus 3 says so. If a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he rule in the church? So it's got to be like that. My wife has to understand that. I have to understand that. My children have to respect that. And we have to go that way. And you'd be surprised how many young people don't give a hang what anybody thinks about how they live. I don't care what our name is or what we do. I'm going to do my own thing. Now, they got that somewhere. I'm not saying they were taught that at home, but that came into their life somewhere and was never dealt with. Because a praying man will pray that he will see what he needs to deal with in his home. And in the Bible, when a kid would not line up, you know what Deuteronomy 21 said, if a child would not mind? They took him to the elders of the gate. They took their lovely their little baby that everybody wanted to hold. Oh, isn't, he cute? isn't she cute? They took him to the elders of the gate and said, he won't mind. He won't obey anything that we said. So they line him up out there, pick up their stones, and they kill him. They stone him. What a terrible thing, but it's the way it is. God said, I don't want that kind of stuff in the country. I want everybody to fear me and live the way I want them to live. So you see, if we don't live right, if we don't do it God's way, society and the church begins to erode, and here's what happens. Turn to Isaiah 3. Here's what happens. Isaiah describes it clear. At least I think it's clear. You judge for yourself. Isaiah 3, verse 1. When men don't want to be men, when husbands don't want to take charge and lead, or in the New Testament sense to rule, oversee in their families, God said, I will remove him. The whole staff and stay of bread, the mighty man, the man of war, the judge and the prophet, the things that make the nation strong, that you got to have in a nation, they'll be taken away. And here's what happens, verse 4. And I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. We could call that a child-centered home. When children are allowed to act any way they want to, throw any kind of a fit they want to and use a word they heard on the TV program you were watching, a very bad word, and then we laugh at it because it was cute. And we never deal with it. And they grow up like that. And I will give children, God said, I will give children to be their 
princes, and babes shall rule over them, and the people shall be what? Does your Bible say the people shall be oppressed? Why? Because there is no favor of God but the work and the activity of the devil. Look in verse 12. As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, they which lead thee cause thee to err and destroy the way of thy paths. That's how important teaching is. Verse 16, moreover, the Lord saith, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, proud, arrogant, and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes. That must be the United States in the year 2010. They walk with wanton, lusty, sensual eyes, walking and mincing as they go and making a tingling with their feet. That is, they're strutting and twisting. Wouldn't you say something like that? In other words, they are walking and dressing in such a way as to attract attention, and when they get it, they really flaunt what they got. I saw a lady today driving downtown. They came out of one of those stores on Main Street, a very well-dressed lady, a nice-looking suit, a nice-looking lady, and had on a suit that was very low-cut, and it was revealing, to say the least, but that's why she wore it. That was the purpose of cutting it so low with nothing to cover this, her breast up because it was designed to be that way to look. This makes the, enhances the beauty. This is what he's talking about. Now, she didn't have any bells on her feet, but he goes on to say, therefore, the Lord will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will discover their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the bravery or the finery of their tinkling ornaments about their feet and their uh, headbands and their round tires like the moon. Now, these are, <laughs> she didn't have a big tire on her head, but these are words that they use then to describe decorations of the head and the face. You know, the bird cages hanging off your ears and the all this different color stuff here, and then you got paint around your eyes to make them stand out, and you got this color and that color and this flip and that flip, and it's for attraction. It's the opposite of modesty. And this is what God is pointing out. I didn't write this. Tell the person beside you, he didn't write this. Tell him. Okay, okay, you all know that now. Verse 21, the rings and nose jewels. I think we see that today too. Rings in her nose and bells on her toes. 22, the changeable suits of apparels and the mantles and the wimples and the crisping pins, whatever all of that is. <laughs> Verse 24, and it shall come to pass. Now, this is what you can expect to happen in this generation that we're in right now. I'm not going to prophesy this because it's already been prophesied, but I could say this, thus saith the Lord. When you see what I just described happening, children, women taking the forefront, men abdicating their roles and getting in the shadows and letting the women just take over. When you see that happen, instead of sweet smell, there shall be stink. Instead of a girdle, a rent. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. 
instead of a stomacher, a girding of sackcloth, and burning instead of beauty. And then verse 25, it began with this, it ends with this in this chapter. Thy men shall fall by the sword, and thy mighty in the war. And her gates shall lament and mourn, and she being desolate shall sit upon the ground. Now, is there anything good about that? Let me ask you the question. How does it come about that a man like Abraham in his time, a man who in Genesis 18 said that God says, I know him, that he will command his children, his family after him to obey the commandments of the Lord. And therefore, I will bring upon him all that I have promised. It's back to that grace thing. God said, I have a package of blessing for every family in this room. I have a special way to manifest myself in every home in this place so that you can have Deuteronomy 11, the days of heaven on earth. Now, what it takes is favor. You live the way he said, and these things will come upon you and overtake you. But if you're unwilling to do that, especially starting with men, if men do what they do, well, they don't take over. They don't make decisions. They literally wimp out. And mama takes over and likes the idea of spending the money, bouncing the checkbook, and giving him an allowance. And the children are allowed to talk and sass any way they want to. After all, it's important in growing up to express yourself. Well, my mother never read that. And so the man stands by and lets all of this happen. God says, okay. Here's what's going to happen to your country because you let that happen at home. Because women and children are part of the home. Would you say that? Okay, you let your home get out of order. Here's what's going to happen to you men and your country. You're going to come to ruin and desolation and no favor and no help from God. Now, folks, this is how important a family, the Christian home is. And how important it is that we do it right and we get it right. Because this is what God wants. God wants us to raise up godly seed. And you can't have godly seed without godly parents. And you can't have godly parents without a godly word. And you can't have a godly word without godly convictions because of that word. And you can't have godly convictions unless you're willing to do what he said. It all comes back individually, me and you personally, between us and God, having a heart that can respond to God because he gave it to you and then being willing to do it. And I can see from where I'm standing, not looking at you, of course, but I can see what Paul meant when he said, those of you who are single, it's easier for you to live this way if you're single. Because you don't have all these other things that interrupt your relationship to God. Routines, children, diapers, him and her, and going and paying and doing and finding. You don't have to do all that. But if you're married, and you got all that to do, there's a right way to do it that gets good results. But you better make up your mind before you get married that you're willing to live this way. Because if you're going to come through that door with discord, you're not bringing what you should here. But if you want to bring peace and quiet into this place because you got a peaceful home, bring it on. Amen. I'll get to pray with all your children, or you will. They'll all be saved. They'll all be speaking in tongues filled with the Spirit. And they won't be unhappy kids trying to get boys to look at them or trying to appeal to girls. That won't be the thing in their life that they need. That won't be a need of their life. They can live in a way that when they get to a certain age, God will bring them to him. It's like, Lord, here's my children. 
I've done my best, and, and you've honored it, so here they come. I want you to save them, and he saves them. Wouldn't it be nice if you, all your children were saved, all your grandchildren were saved, and all your great-grandchildren were saved? And maybe great-greats? How old are you going to be? Well, I don't know. I do not know. I just know that the Bible places a lot of, without directly saying it, a lot of emphasis on the well-being of this nation and the well-being of this church, and your life focuses on the home because that's what we are, a group of. We're a group of homes. So the home is a proving ground, as I said, a proving ground for whether or not you can lead in the church. And if a man know not how to lead at home, as I said in 1 Timothy 3, 15, if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he rule in his church? No man can rule in his home if his wife opposes him. If she is continually in opposition to him and his decisions and has no prudence or wisdom in how to deal with him about things that she needs to talk to him about, and she can't. A woman has every right in the world to talk to her husband about what she thinks about things he's doing. It's not wrong, but there's a wrong way to do it. This in your face, I'll tell you, one th that's not the way to do it. But for a wise woman who could say, can we have a talk? I'd like to talk to you about something. Is that okay? Do you ever talk to Christ like that? Do you ever go into prayer and say, can I talk to you about something? What does Jesus say? I don't have time. Doesn't Jesus listen to you when you pray? Seems like he always has time for you because he loves you. As Christ loved the church, so should uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Amen. Now, having said all that, let's define the home. The home. A dictionary simply says, the social unit formed by a family living together. But a family today could mean a lot of things. Two men, two women, a group of guys in a home together. We're just one big family. We call the church sometimes. This is our family. So Webster just simply says the social unit formed by a family living together. Let me give you one that would be more accurate for Christian, a Christian family. A Christian home is where a man and a woman, now they are different. A Christian home is where a man and a woman, by mutual consent, are joined together in marriage in order to live permanently together as husband and wife and to establish a home and raise a godly seed. So it's a choice. A Christian home is where a man and a woman, by mutual consent, are joined together in marriage in order to live permanently together as husband and wife, in order to establish a home and to raise godly seed. That's the right environment. If God had not in the garden established marriage, it's a divine ordinance. Marriage is divine. It was the idea and the act of God. If God had not effected marriage in this world, we would live much like the animal world, which is the way the world is living now. There's a story in the Bible about wild horses, and when one of the mares is in heat, that the stallions, they sniff up the air and they find her out. You know, I was thinking today in a 
bad way, that's the way a lot of kids are acting today. We're just like animals, just breeding, just recreational sex, they call it today. Just getting together, not just eat a pizza or watch a movie, but to have sex. It means nothing. Everything that God has said in his word has been completely kicked out of their mind. They have no room for it. They can't escape the guilt of it. I think all of them have guilt. They add drugs to that. All these new sex pills and drugs are out to try to make that lustful, sensual nature that came after the fall in the garden to be magnified as much as they can. That's what a lot of people live for. To go to parties and to drink and to pick up girls or go with guys. And it's just like there is no moral standards at all anymore. Nobody can draw a line and say, I can't cross that line. But we've come to that because of this erosion 30 years ago when the whole fabric of the American society and all that had been established for a thousand years, it all began to give way to the opinions of, hey, man, who's supposed to tell me? And the long hair and the rebellion and the everything different. And divorce skyrocketed. And the people who grew up then are the senators and the lawmakers now. They burned campuses down then, now they're grandparents. And so we're living in a day in, in which no longer do people want to define sin and evil and wrong. And if you don't have that in your home, you don't have much. Let's go back to that definition briefly again. It is a union between a man and a woman by mutual consent. Now, I like the Bible way better. You know, daddy goes out and finds his daughter or his son a bride or husband. That was the father did that, and whatever he brought in is what she got. I think that's the way it ought to be today. All you young folks believe that's okay, say amen. Look at that. I remember that movie, The Fiddler on the Roof, and the butcher was not an attractive man at all. But he was well-to-do, and the girl's daddy, who was a young and time of marrying age girl, and he was going to let the butcher marry his daughter. And, uh, uh, but today, it's different. Today, all of that has changed. Our society has changed. And today, they try to find out who they're supposed to marry by dating. And that's been a disaster because it's trained the mind to go from one to the other one and to put up with nothing. You don't tell me what to do, and out you go. And we'll get into that. We'll take our time with that one, too, but that would be down the road a little bit. The home is where you start. It's when these two people marry, and they took in a vow, and they agreed with each other before God and all the witnesses here that we want everybody to come and we want all of you to know here that before God, I am willing as a young lady to commit myself to the well-being of this man. And he says, and I am willing to take this woman to my house to love her as Christ loved the church for the rest of our lives. That's what you say. And I would say to anybody that's going to get married, don't say that unless you absolutely mean it. I don't care how good it looks. Because something is happening that shouldn't be happening when half of all the marriages in the church, it's as bad in the church as it is in the world. 
There's something like, well, for one thing, they don't fight through their problems. They hit a wall. They haven't learned the lesson of walking by faith in the church. They don't do it in their marriage. You don't trust God out there in the world. You won't trust him in your marriage. You won't trust him with your relationships or your children or anything else. Maybe I should preach on faith the rest of the night and say again how important it is for Christians to live by faith. Because that's how you deal with anything. You can't get that without the word, but if the word isn't taught and you're just made to be comfortable, then all you got is a comfortable surrounding and everything that happens in the home is according to how you feel about it. And you get two people sideways with each other and then the word isn't in their lives, all they're going to do is blow up. I mean, you split an atom and what happened? Well, you split a family, you get the same thing in our society. Turn to Genesis chapter 2. The Christian home is a divine institution. It is something ordained of God and brought forth by God so that we will not be like the animal world. Now, this is how the home started. Genesis chapter 2 will begin with and mention verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Then in verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I praise God for that. I will make him a help meet for him. Out of the ground... God calls every beast of the field, every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to all the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helpmeet for him. Now, begin with, God said it's not good that for a man should be alone. It's not good. He needs some help. He'll need somebody to aid and assist him. He'll need somebody with a tender nature that ministers to him differently than he could find in any other man. That's why God made a woman different. I'm glad he did. And so he made a woman. Here's what the BBE says, the Bible in basic English says, And the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be by himself. I will make one like him as a help to him. A help means one who helps and who aids. It refers to aid or assistance that is given. That's what a woman's job is. That's what her role is in life. He made her. This is where people get tense. He made her. For that reason. Y'all in here? I don't like that. Well, did y'all tell somebody a while ago I didn't write this? Okay. I'll just read again. The word help is one who helps or one who aids. It refers to aid or assistance that is given. Now the word meet for him, M-E-E-T for him, really has to do with, the dictionary says in a special sense, that seems to indicate Eve's likeness to Adam. And she was like him. Now, he looked at all these animals. 
seemed strange. He said he needs somebody to help him. So all the animals came by, and he named them all, you know, cat, dog, zebra, lion, tiger, and they all came by, and he gave names to all of them, and whatever Adam called them is what they were. Then it says, but there wasn't found any of these animals to be a helpmeet for him. They weren't like him. They didn't have a language. That's the one thing that makes man unique amongst any created order is we have a language. We can speak to God. We don't grunt and yell. We just talk or make noises. We have a language. So anyway, so God did this. In order to get man what he wanted, he said he took a rib out of his side in verse 21, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now let me give you another couple of translations here. The CEV translation says, and the man exclaimed, here is someone like me. She is part of my body, my own flesh and bones. She came from me, a man, so I will name her woe man, or woman, excuse me. <laughs> woe is man, but anyway, woman. The Good News Bible said, then the man said, at last, here is one of my own kind. Bone taken from my bone and flesh from my flesh. Woman is her name because she was taken out of man. And the next verse begins with the word therefore. Now let me go back and say this again because the New Testament would also substantiate this. Like 1 Corinthians 7 says this, for the man is not of the woman, but the woman is of the man. How many of you know the man came first? And because a man was first, a woman was able to come forth, but not created, but made from a man. When God made Adam, he was full and complete as God made him. When he took his rib out of his body, he was no longer as God made him. But what he made with what he took out was something that he needs very badly. And when he is joined back to a woman, he becomes again what he is. Two shall become one. Look at the next verse. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother. Now, neither one of them had a father or a mother. Amen? Remember, Moses, by divine inspiration, is writing this. Jesus quotes it and Paul quotes it. He said, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. And because he cleaves unto his wife, if they do, they shall be one flesh. Now, let me say first of all about the permanency of marriage. Would you put your finger right there and go to Matthew chapter 19, just for a moment, or two. Matthew 19, where Jesus quotes this. Let's look at verse three. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him and saying unto him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? There were disputes amongst the rabbis who wrote about divorce. Some wrote you could put away your wife for a little thing like burning the toast or just a little insignificant something. They're like politicians today. Whatever sells and gets them promoted, they'll go along with it. 
Others were more strict and gave a little room for divorce. So the Pharisees said, you know, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? This is what Jesus answered about that question, about that subject to those men. Verse 4. And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? That's the way it's supposed to be, folks. A boy and a girl, the opposite sex. Men don't marry men. Women don't marry women. Amen? Amen. And he said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall be one flesh. And notice what he adds in the New Testament because this is the principle that goes with that. Wherefore, they are no more two but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man, courts, laws, or anything else put asunder. It was never designed like that. Well, didn't Moses give a law of divorcement? And Jesus said, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. You would have quit God and been judged over this, so he allowed you to do that, just like the Bible allows you multiple marriages in the Old Testament. But he said in the garden, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And they too, not they three or four, but they too shall become one. So you Mormons take that. But he said, they too shall be one flesh. Not three or four marriages, three or four wives at one time, but one. Amen. Now today, some people are like, well, I don't believe God put us together. Did you get married? Yeah. God ordained marriage. Amen. The reason he didn't show you who to marry is because you were a heathen and you wouldn't have believed it anyway. He just simply says, if you're going to live in this world live with a woman, get married. I institute marriage so you will not be like the animal world. And so a lot of people get married. Then they, I've had them say to me, well, we don't believe God ever joined us together. How long were you a Christian? 20 years. Then what you're actually saying is that anybody that gets saved ought to get married again because you weren't Christians when you got saved. So if you were not saved when you got married, maybe your marriage wasn't of God. Maybe you need to get married again. So we need to have a bunch of more weddings. No, God instituted marriage in the Garden of Eden. He said, what God joins together, let no man put asunder. It's not going to be like that. You know where it says that? You're one book back to the left, Malachi. Look in chapter 2, verse 11. Judah hath dealt treacherously. Now, treacherously here means as a traitor. One who is unfaithful, one who betrays. That's what he means when he says treacherously is a traitorous, unfaithful, betraying person. Takes his word back. Judah had dealt treacherously and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord. Now that would be the marriage covenant which is holy. Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord which he loved and hath married the daughter of a strange God. They begin to mingle with the world. They begin 
coming out of the life that God gave them to live and seeing this different kind of address, a different kind of activity. The women were frisky, and they were really cute, and they liked to dance. And these boys, whoa. And he looked at their wife, you know, and said, man, whoa. <coughs> mm, whoa. So they left their wives and married these girls who worshiped other gods. And he said, when you did that, all of these things happened. First of all, you committed an abomination. She didn't burn the toe. She messed up nothing. You just lusted after another woman, and you went after her, and you dropped this one because you had a hole in Deuteronomy 24, so you claimed that, and you went after these other gods. When you did that, you committed an abomination, and you profaned the holiness of God, that marriage covenant which he gave because you married the daughter of a strange God. Now, a lot of things happen to those people. And he said in verse 12, the Lord will cut off the man that does this. No favor from God. You may live in this world, but you're a miserable man. Verse 14, yet you say, why? Why? Well, because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth. That's when you first married. That was a woman you entered into a covenant relationship with in your early days when people married. The wife of your youth. Notice. Against whom you have dealt traitorously, unfaithfully, you have betrayed her, yet, notice, you put her away. Doesn't he say you put him away? Yet, what is she? Doesn't say she was. It says what? She is thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. That other little hussy that he had married wasn't his wife. His wife was the woman he married of his youth. That's his covenant relationship. That's his covenant wife. And notice, verse 15, and did he not make one? Now he had the spirit. You know, the spirit of God inspired all of this. And why did he make one? Why did he want you to, to leave and cleave? So that what? That he might obtain from your union, your marriage, in your home, a godly seed. Children that will become citizens of the kingdom and not leave the church when they're 15. Not become rebels at home. That he might have a godly seed. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. Not his ex-wife, but his, the wife of his youth. Those are pretty serious statements. Listen to the CEV version again about verse 14. And why isn't God pleased? It's because he knows that each of you men has been unfaithful to the wife you married when you were young. You promised that she would be your partner, but now you have broken that promise. It happens every day in America and in the church. If you don't go along with it, they'll fire you and get them a preacher that will let you do that. Because almost everybody in here is affected by somebody's marriage. Children, aunts, uncles, friends. Oh, don't talk about that. They're, they're not. That's why I've said that I don't know how you can pastor people that are not properly married. Because when you bring this subject up, they get offended. Like I said at the beginning, this book, this subject excites a lot of passions. But I made up my mind 
a long time ago that I'm going to stay with God with this. The Good News Bible says this. You ask me why he no longer accepts your gifts from him or your prayers. It is because he knows that you have broken your promise to the wife you married when you were young. She was your partner, and you have broken your promise to her, although you promised before God that you would be faithful to her. Isn't that what all of you did if you're married? Isn't that what we do at a marriage ceremony? Don't we promise to be faithful? Is it serious? Jesus said what God has joined together. No man put asunder. Said Moses allowed you to divorce your wife, but from the beginning it was not so. It was not so. Because of all the problems and complications that come with remarriage and so on and so forth. I know a lot of people said, oh, we haven't had that problem. That's okay. That's good. I'm going to go back to Genesis again. Go back to where you were. Just wanted to show you that God doesn't want us to get married and then get tired of being married and then want somebody else. He wants you to be married for life so long as you both shall live. The words leave and cleave. For this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife. Genesis chapter 2. Now let me amplify these two words, leave and cleave. I believe, first of all, this word leave is in there for this reason. There comes a time when a man should leave home. There comes a time when a girl should leave home, move out, you know, get away from your parents. Every time I see kids want to go off to college, now a lot of them survive. I've been in college. I was in college. It took me five years. I know what I did. I know what it was like, and I think it's five times worse now. Last time I took one of my children to college and let them off, and I remember staying around. My brother lived there then in Moorhead and left late at night, and I couldn't believe how many people were sitting out at night on the steps of the dorm. I mean, one in the morning, just sitting there talking, doing nothing. I don't even know if I go to class anymore. But they complain and they cry and they think, you know, you get away from your home, you get away from a godly influence. And you get around other people who have no such influence in their lives, very, very few. And you learn to be independent. And you learn to do your own thing. And you come home and you back to the old routines, you find yourself kind of rising up against your parents who tell you, no, I don't, we don't want you to go out tonight. You've been going to school, we want you to stay home. Quit treating me like a baby. She should never talk back like that. It never should be. Something really went wrong a long time ago. But I think when a man comes along and he's the one that is God's will for a woman to marry, the man goes to the father, talks to the father. If he can see the girl, you start that way. Courtship, and I'm going to talk about it later. I've seen too many invitations for marriage with pictures of the two people that are getting married just courting with the, all over each other. That's not good. Now, if that was you, I'm not your enemy. It's just not good. You do that and you get married. That's what marriage is for. It's two men and a woman to love themselves as much as they can. And all the ways that God gives them to love, they just love each other that way. No restraints, but not when you're courting. 
you get a lot of guilt like that. You get over the guilt. You sit in church and you hear something against that and you say, ah, well, it's no big deal. I'm okay. I haven't done nothing wrong yet. And you're allowing yourself to let down. That's why you get in trouble. When you leave home, it means you leave because God brings into your life the one you're going to marry. If you're a young man, I would suppose it means the same. Although I have to admit that when mine got big enough to live somewhere else, it kind of gave us a lot more room at the house. A girl's different. She has far more to lose messing up in the world than a boy does. Boys make babies all the time and disappear. And she and her parents and her friends are strapped with raising somebody that nobody wanted. Because every child born out of wedlock was not a wanted child. They have a spirit of rejection right away because they weren't wanted. And every time you give yourself liberties to hugging and kissing and carrying on, you're opening up a door for that very thing to happen. And when it happens, the devil make a fool out of you. Amen. Leave and cleave. Let's pick it up there next time. Leave and cleave. Amen. Amen.